You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. Speaking of reconciliation, who here is looking forward to rekindling uh, your relationship with spring and summer? Yeah, I am as well, because I'm kind of done with winter. And yes, it has its own beauty and thankful for the day, stuff like that. But I want to become friends with, with the grass and the warmth again. Because winter, yeah, winter's getting kind of annoying. For, I'll tell you a story about winter and why it's annoying for me. On Friday morning, you know, there's a couple of huge snowfalls that happened this week, right? So on Friday morning, I had to take the garbage out. And because I was also in a hurry getting the kids ready for school, I just quickly grabbed the bags that, that were sitting on our back porch, and I, I ran to the back gate just wearing my house coat, and I found some rain boots that were sitting by the back door, so I threw those on. And so I'm in my house coat and rain boots, and, uh, and, I'm, and I'm running, you know, through our backyard to, the, to our back gate. And um, I wasn't planning on being out there long, obviously. I just want to throw the bags in the bin and get back in the house, right? So... Anyways, our yard has this big gate. It's basically a fence with wheels on it, and you have to, like, roll it open to to get to the back alley where our bin is. But, of course, that morning, it was frozen shut. Like, it was frozen solid. I I was, like, moving it and trying to push it and pull it, and it wouldn't budge, not even even an inch. So, long story short, my only option was to start tossing the garbage bags over the fence into our back alley. So I'm standing there in my house coat and rain boots, tossing garbage over the back fence into our alley. And then I had to climb the fence myself and, 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 and get into the alley so that I could put the bags in the bin. So anyways, quite, quite the trashy situation going on there. Um, it was definitely a new low for me. Uh, I'm sure I showed a lot of leg. And, uh, but fortunately, I live on the north side, so nobody even gave me a second look. <laughs> so, uh, that's normal. It's everyday occurrence there. But that's one reason I'm done with winter. And it's, and it's moments like those that make me look back to and long for the joys of summer. And one of the, one of the joys or highlights for me last summer was, spent, was being able to spend a couple weeks in the mountains. Uh, I went to Mill Creek Camp for, for a week and, um, when Audrey was speaking. And, I, and, um, and we went camping as a church as well. And I was able to, you know, those moments were amazing. And I, and, and I really enjoyed them. And to be honest, I don't do that enough. I don't go enough into the, into the mountains. But when I do, I really enjoy it. You know, the, the serenity, the, the scenery, the, the vastness and, and beauty of walking through a forest trail or, or staring out, out on the edge of a cliff, you know, on the, seeing the tops of trees resting beneath a blue sky, you know, sitting around a campfire, listening, listening to its spark and then listening to the chatter of birds and squirrels in the distance. You know, there's, there's nothing like that, right? It's, it's, incre- it's an incredible experience when you're there. And I don't know if you guys feel this way, but... but w- how it is for me, anyways, when, when, when I go into nature, when, when I'm walking through a forest or I'm standing at the foot of a mountain, there's always this juxtaposition of, of feeling an immense peace and restful serenity. But also at the same time, there's this healthy dose of, of fear and humility in the, in the midst of something so vast and unknown. And it's, it's a crazy feeling. And I think one of the reasons that I still get that feeling of awe and, and wonder and even reverence each time I go is because I don't go that much, because I don't see it every day. Living in the city, I forget how beautiful and grand it is when you go into nature. So I don't, 
so I don't usually take it for granted when I get there. Uh, I really enjoy it. And, and, and um, that reminds me of one time my family and I, we went to Maple Ridge to visit Audrey's sister and her family. And, and um, behind her house, there's this creek bed. It's in Maple Ridge, so you know, it's by Vancouver. It's, uh, it's kind of in the mountains. And uh, there's this creek bed behind her house. Like basically in her backyard, there's this creek bed. And, and, and what I'd call it a North American rainforest behind her house. The, the plants were gor- these gorgeous greens. They were incredibly huge. Like they had huge leaves on them, like something out of Pandora. Uh, but, but this wasn't fantasy. It was like for real. Like it was actually happening. And, and one day there was, there was even this huge owl that perched on a tree, like right by their back porch. And I, I honestly thought I was in Narnia in that moment. Uh, I thought it was going to look into my soul and tell me my destiny. It was just like crazy experience. Uh, so of course, we were, we were all mesmerized by what was going on behind their house, like this amazing uh, picture of, of nature and, and, and God's creation. And we commented to Audrey's sister how, how amazing that was and how, how beautiful her backyard is and how it must be so awesome that she gets to wake up every morning and look out her window and see this. And she's like, oh, you know, I'm kind of used to it now, so I actually don't really give it much thought. And we're like, what? You know, like my backyard here in Lethbridge is usually filled with yellow, crispy dead grass. Like I'd love to have a rainforest in my backyard to look out to as I, as I sit on my porch and sip my coffee in the morning, you know. But I, I get it, though. I, I get her nonchalantness in that, in that moment um, because that's, that's what happens, right? When we see or hear something all the time, even something incredibly spectacular, it can become normalized and then it can start to lose its flair and then we, we end up taking it for granted, and sometimes we even become bored or discontent with it, and and we start looking or longing for something else. And so the result is that we don't end up actually exploring or or admiring or being thankful or taking advantage of of these incredible moments, these experiences and opportunities that we have. Or to put it another way, we neglect to draw near to these things, to invest in them, even though they're right in front of us. We often see that normalization and that discontentment creep into our relationships sometimes or with our friends. We don't take advantage of, of the friend, our friends or the time we have with our kids or, or with our jobs even or with our possessions or with the country we live in. Or we don't realize how, how good we have it sometimes. But as, as Christians, I think we often do this in our relationship with God. What I mean is, is that I think many of us do lose that wonder and awe and fear of God as our Christianity becomes normalized or as we, as we get caught up in the busyness or tradition of doing church or caught up in the, the theology and, or whatever. And, and, and yeah, so we show up on a Sunday morning and at home we might pray over a meal and, and we look at our Bibles from across the room, but we forget or we neglect to draw near. We forget how awesome it is to to enter God's presence and talk to him and know him and ultimately just how awesome God is. We forget how amazing it is that God even wants us to draw near. That God even wants us to know him, to be in relationship with him, to to live in his presence. God wants that. James 4 verse 8 at the beginning says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's a promise. So we have this profound and unheard of opportunity to know the God of creation, to see him and know him. But are we actually taking advantage of that? 
Like standing at the foot of the mountain, each time we draw near to God and set our gaze upon Him, every time we sing about His holiness and grace and and love, each time we enter into or even just acknowledge the presence of God, we should be filled with that juxtaposition of both joy and reverence, of wonder and fear of how holy and glorious He is. As Christians, we should be filled with a passion for His presence and a longing to go deeper. We should be on our faces in worship and the glory and majesty and holiness. But are we? Or has it just become mundane in our hearts? At the root of this, I think it's because we often forget in those moments, most of all, what a privilege and what a miracle it is that we even get to do this in the first place that we even get to draw near to God at all. Because it wasn't always that way. I think the problem is that we've become bored with summer because we've forgotten about winter. So we're going to talk about winter for a bit to remind us. Because I think we've forgotten, maybe not theologically, but internally in our hearts, that the only reason we get to enter God's presence and that we get to do it with confidence and without falling down dead is because of the cross of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17-19 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. So it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway that if we had to be reconciled with God and restored to God in our relationship and right standing with him through Christ, that means, obviously, it wasn't always that way. That we were once estranged to God as well, right? Because of our trespasses, our sin. And again, what did we learn last week specifically? The good news that Jesus took our sin upon himself. We have forgiveness of sins through the cross. But I think it's important for us to realize that it's not just about being personally forgiven of sins. The deeper problem with sin is that we were created to dwell with God. We were created to dwell with God, but sin destroyed that. It estranged us from God, made us orphans to God, made us enemies of God. No, no one could stand in God's presence. In fact, back in, in Jesus' day and before that, the manifest presence of God was, was actually inaccessible to everyone except for one person. For one day, each year, and only in the inner room of the temple, and even then, it wasn't God's full presence. Hebrews 9 verse 7 says, But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. So only the high priest of Israel could enter into the presence of God. And only once a year. And only with the blood of a sacrifice. And so he did that on behalf of all the people. They had to vicariously have the presence of God through one person. And I want to read you a description of how this all went down. 
just so we get the big picture, because it'll help us understand in a bit. So within the holy place of the tabernacle, there was an inner room called the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place. It was the most sacred room, a place no ordinary person could enter. It was God's special dwelling place in the midst of his people. During the Israelites' wanderings in the wilderness, God appeared as a pillar of cloud or fire in and above the Holy of Holies. But a thick curtain separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. The curtain, known as the veil, was made of fine linen and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. The word veil in Hebrew means a screen, divider, or separator that hides. What was this curtain hiding? Essentially, it was shielding a holy God from sinful man. Whoever entered into the Holy of Holies was entering the very presence of God. In fact, anyone except the high priest who entered the Holy of Holies would die. Even the high priest, God's chosen mediator with his people, could only pass through the veil and enter his sacred dwelling once a year on a prescribed day called the Day of Atonement. Even as the high priest entered the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, he had to make some meticulous preparations. He had to wash himself, put on special clothing, bring burning incense to let the smoke cover his eyes from a direct view of God, and bring blood with him to make atonement for sins. So there's a lot that had to go on for one person to enter into the kind of presence of God, right? And, and, and I think being that high priest... <laughs> Just imagine being that high priest. I think that would be like the, the greatest and most wonderful experience ever, but also at the same time, the scariest experience ever, right? There's that juxtaposition, right? There's actually this false idea or rumor that's always going around, and you may have, concerning that, and, and you may have heard it, that they used to supposedly, I, I think it's false, supposedly they used to tie a rope to the high priest before he went into the Holy of Holies, just in case he did drop dead. Uh, so they could, you know, pull his corpse out because, of course, they can't go in after him or they would die too. And then over, over time, you'd have a big pile of corpses in the Holy of Holies, which, which um, you know, isn't very sacred. Uh, so you didn't want that. Anyways, supposedly that happened because there, but there's no tangible evidence of that rope idea I know of. But at the same time, it's incredibly plausible because when you look through the whole Bible, any person, whether it's John in Revelation, or Moses on Mount Sinai, or in the desert, or the priest of Levi carrying the Ark of the Covenant, or burning incense at the temple, or, or the prophets, you know, every time someone even barely touched or caught just a glimpse or vision of the presence of the holiness of God, what, what happened? They were overwhelmed by the glory of God, and they were overcome in their sin. And someone even died. For example, in his presence, Isaiah cries out to God that he's a man with unclean lips when he's in the presence of God. In Ezekiel 3.15, uh, Ezekiel writes that it took him seven days to recover from his vision of God. Seven days. And he, just had a, he just had a vision of God. As Andy Bannister once tweeted, when people in the Bible are given a vision of God, they respond by falling on their face. So the, the point here is that the veil that was set up between man and God in that temple is a sacred and powerful thing. It's showing us and reminding us that the holiness and righteousness of God is inaccessible to sinners. God cannot look upon evil without doing something about it. That's his nature. 
So the Holy of Holies is God's way of dwelling with his people while simultaneously protecting them from his judgment. And on that note, we have to understand then that God didn't hide himself behind the curtain for his sake. Okay? It's, it was for our sake. It was for his people's sake. God isn't afraid to be around sin. Sometimes we get that backwards. and think, oh, God can't be around sin. God is not afraid to be around sin. Sin is afraid to be around God. Sin cannot stand in the presence of a holy God because God cannot simply excuse sin or pretend it doesn't matter. That's why we often try to hide our sins from God, right? Because innately we know that. So we try to, we try to hide from God when we sin. Simply put, sin angers God. It makes us enemies and strangers and orphans to him. And it makes us subject to his wrath. I said it. Wrath. I don't always talk about wrath because I think we all have different ideas or opinions of what that word means. Uh, I was doing some, some research at home this week and uh, I have these sticky notes with different reference words that I have sticking out of all my theology books and out of my Bible and stuff so I can go back to them for, for information or verses or quotes or whatever. They're basically bookmarks, right? And, and, and there was one sticky note that was sticking out of one of my books and I had just written one reference word on it for me to turn back to when I got to that part of my sermon, and the word written on it was wrath. Wrath. And uh, my 10-year-old son, Liam, walks by. He looks down, reads the notes sticking out of the book, and then he looks at me with a disappointed rebuke, and he's like, Dad, that's not a good word. <laughs> Fair enough. He's not wrong, right? Like, I mean, well, well, at least in the way that we view that word today, he's not wrong. When we think of wrath, we usually think of, you know, someone snapping in, in their anger and their rage and, and lashing out violently out of control, acting irrationally, maybe even enjoying it, right? We, we think of wrath as evil, and we think of it as unloving. And it can be. I mean, when we act out as humans, when we act out in, in our wrath, it definitely is. So we often have a hard time of balancing out this idea that that God can simultaneously be loving and wrathful and have judgment, right? But God's wrath isn't like what we we think it is. I'm not watering it down. It's serious. But he's not impatiently losing his mind on us, right? He's He's not lashing out or snapping in his anger at us. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Rather, his wrath, believe it or not, actually stems from his holiness. It actually stems from his love and his faithfulness, from his goodness, from his righteousness. It's not evil. God doesn't have, like, two sides. He's not Jekyll and Hyde. It's not evil. It's God acting justly against evil. And is he angry? Oh, absolutely. He's, he's slow to anger, but he's certainly angry at sin. Angry that his creation is being corrupted and polluted by it. That his people are being deceived and taken from him because of it. And you might disagree with me here. That's fine. You might disagree with my next point, too. That's your prerogative. But in my opinion, deep down, we all have a deep desire to see it. 
Of course, not against ourselves. We don't, we don't want God's wrath against ourselves, right? Uh, but we want to see it. We, we want to see his wrath against evil. We want to see his justice. We want to see evil get what it deserves. Don't we? Think of it. Every, every time we see an injustice, what do we do? We cry out in anger and rage. When, when white police officers shoot black men in the streets, we cry for justice. When unborn babies and innocent children are killed, we cry out for justice. When, when a school gets shot up, we cry out for justice. When, when women are being raped and abused without consequence, we cry out for justice. From the depths of our hearts, we're, we're crying out for the wrath of God. We're crying out for God to destroy sin and evil and destruction and death and corruption and, and murder and hurt, and pain, and sorrow, and abuse, and all the gross and corrupt things that sin carries along with it. So yes, I don't think we often realize it, and we don't often want to admit it because it sounds so, so harsh, but we, we want to see God's wrath. We want to see him enact justice, and remove evil, and remove sin, and, and he does, and on the day of the Lord, we'll see it in full. So the underlying problem here isn't the wrath of God. God's not me- being mean and dealing with sin. The truth is that, that, that in actuality, God wants and desires to dwell with us. To be reconciled with us and to have peace between us and him. And he's faithful to his promise of doing that. But on the other hand, God, God is just. God is good. God is holy. So he can't let the works of sin go unnoticed or, or go unpunished. And neither can he allow sin to enter his, into his corrupt, or, or, or enter in and corrupt his coming kingdom. There's, there's no room for it. Something has to be done about it, something eternal, something sure before restoration can happen. And also, in my opinion, he wouldn't be a good or loving at all if he just, you know, wipes sin under the rug. In that case, he'd be condoning and welcoming evil, Right? sin, all sin doesn't matter. I'm cool with it because I'm a nice guy. That would be God denying his own nature. We wouldn't honor or celebrate a judge in our court system who did that, would we? Right? A judge who lets criminals walk free because the, because the judge is always in a good mood or because he or she is biased or whatever. Right? We wouldn't celebrate that. No, it would be the opposite. We, they'd lose their office if they did that. Or at least they should, because that's not justice, right? That's not right. That's not good. So again, we have to understand that God, who is just and good and right, he didn't hide himself behind the curtain for his sake. It's for our sake, to protect us from his judgment, to protect us from his wrath. And again, in the same vein, we have to understand that God isn't afraid, again, to be around sin. Sin is afraid to be around God. Because God desires to deal with sin. So the, the problem there, the problem there is, is, is how can we as sinners obtain peace and reconciliation with God without being condemned and subject to his wrath? Or rather, how can God restore us to himself or restore us to his presence without denying his nature and condoning sin? Gerald W. Johnson He's a professor at Regent College. He writes, We in our time ask, How can God be good if God does not accept everyone? That's the question we're always asking. How can God be good if God does not accept everyone? 
But the question that biblical authors ask is, how can God be God if God accepts anyone? Because our sin and God's essential character create a huge problem for us, but also for God. God's essential character demands that something be done. But what? But what? The cross. That's what. The cross is the solution. At the cross, we see that God's not only just, but that he's also merciful. In fact, the truth is that his his mercy and faithfulness far outweigh his justice. So much so that throughout history, God has continually withheld his wrath in the name of mercy more than he's acted on it. In his mercy and love, he even made a covenant promise that he'd restore us from it. And ultimately, in his mercy, he did that. He decided to take his wrath upon himself. Jesus, the word of God, made flesh, the fullness of God, did that at the cross. Do you see how amazing that is? He took it on himself. He took on wrath so we could be covered in his righteousness and made right with God. Romans 5, 8 to 9 and verse 16 says this, But God proves his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We read that last week. But it continues, much more than, told you there's always much more, much more than since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from wrath. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, Adam, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. The free gift, the cross. Jesus not only freely forgives us of our sin at the cross, but he also justifies us. He covers us in his righteousness. We sang that earlier. He didn't just forgive our sin, but he covers us in righteousness. Makes us right with God. And, And why would he do that? So that we can see and know God. So that we can approach God with boldness and without fear of condemnation. So we can approach him no longer subject to his wrath, but subject to his glory and blessing. We've been taken from here to here through the cross, right? As Romans 8 verse 1 declares, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. At the cross, Jesus' blood proclaimed and sealed us with God under a new covenant, a covenant of grace. Are we starting to get how how amazing it is that we even get to know God at all? What a privilege it is? Because it it shouldn't be that way. We don't deserve it. But yet at the cross, Jesus whispers to us like he does to the repentant criminal hanging next to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. And what happens next? After he promises that, the symbolic proof, the veil, the curtain of the temple is torn in two. Because God no longer has to hide his face from us. His wrath over our sin has been appeased by the perfect sacrifice of the blood of the Lamb. Now we're no longer enemies with God, but at peace with God. Colossians 1, 19 to 20 says, For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's what Jesus did for us. How, how should we respond? Jesus' blood gives us free access to God, a God we were estranged from and, and separated from. Now we get to, to know him. So how should we respond to that? Well, I believe Hebrews 10, 19-23 gives us a, a clue. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. How often do we come into the presence of God that way? With, with boldness, with, with, with a true heart and the full assurance of faith confidently proclaiming our hope in the glory of God, drawing near with reverence and awe and trust in his faithfulness. Or again, have we just normalized the experience or the idea or just grown bored of the doctrine of it? We're just like, man, I've heard that before. I've been there, done that. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I hope that's not the case. But there's even times where, where I'll admit that, you know, sometimes I catch myself just going through the motions of church or even just daily living. And on that subject, A.W. Tozer asked this. He says, With the veil removed by the rending of Jesus' flesh, with nothing on God's side to prevent us from entering, why do we tarry without? Why do we consent to abide all our days just outside the Holy of Holies and never enter at all to look upon God? We hear the bridegroom say, Let me see thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. We sense that the, <clears throat> excuse me, we sense that the call is for us, but still we fail to draw near. And the years pass and we grow old and tired in the outer courts of the tabernacle. What hinders us? What is it? What? but the presence of a veil in our hearts. Jesus opened the way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So what's, what's keeping us from going in? What's, what's keeping our heart veiled? What's preventing you from taking full advantage of entering into the presence of God? You have to ask yourself this. I don't, I don't know your heart. Fear of the unknown, if you're a guilt or a shame, an unwillingness to surrender maybe, or self-righteousness, or lust, or despair, or doubt, or apathy. Maybe you're just waiting for someone to, to create the perfect atmosphere or experience of God's presence for you. What is it? Examine your hearts. What's, what's keeping you from entering in? 
And this practice isn't so that we can fix ourselves or anything. We can't fix ourselves. But rather so that we can yield, receive, and trust in the work of the cross where Jesus already carried the burden of those things for us. So that we can come to the foot of the cross and repent, confess, lay down our burdens and our shame and our sin. And then, as A.W. Tozer writes, to reckon them crucified. Not just doctrinally or theologically, but honestly, humbly, and truly. As James 4, 8, the whole verse says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. To draw near to God, we need to surrender our old nature to Christ. To let the blood of Christ have its effect in our hearts. To turn our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And this isn't always an easy process to have our old self stripped from us. You know, spiritually speaking, it can actually be painful sometimes. You might even even feel like that criminal on the cross hanging next to, next to Jesus, admitting his sin. That's hard for us to admit our sin, you know, seeing it all laid before us. But this process of repentance not only has us coming out the other side forgiven and made new, but more importantly and joyfully, we come out of it justified in the sight of our holy God. And again, this is incredible. This is incredible because God isn't an abstract idea or or distant figurehead or, or philosophical concept. He's a person to be known. And Jesus has made him known and has also made it possible for us to know him. And God wants to be known. And because of the cross through Christ, we have full access. Backstage passes, if you will, to hang out with the artist of creation. To live and breathe and rejoice in his presence. And his presence is peace. And his presence is abundant life. And his presence is joy overwhelming, as the psalmist says. His presence is our hope and our comfort in times of trouble. It's blessing, it's conviction, it's, it's strength and it's love and it's light. So the encouragement and challenge to, 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 to myself and to each of you this morning is to not take this for granted. Enter in through the veil. Enter in through the body of Christ. First of all, for salvation, if any of you are here this morning and you've, you've never repented or believed in Jesus' name for the forgiveness of your sins, this is your opportunity. Jesus has made a way. Believe in his name this morning and you will be saved. I'm not going to make you raise your hand or anything, but if you want to talk to someone as a prayer team after my message, that would, that would love to talk to you and pray with you this morning. And for those of us who have already done so, let us then sincerely and confidently take full advantage of His grace and enter into the presence of God. Like a deer panting for water, I know that we long for it. We need it. We thirst for it. And it's there. He's there. Jesus thirsted at the cross so we wouldn't have to. If we're thirsty, drink of the living water. We don't, we don't have to wait outside the curtain anymore or vicariously experience God through a pastor or a priest. 
My job isn't to experience God on your behalf. My, my job is to tell you that you can experience God and know him yourselves through Jesus Christ. He wants us to know him personally, spiritually, emotionally. And the cross of Christ made that possible. The cross of Christ reconciles us to God. So let's set our gaze upon him with full hearts, with awe and wonder, with repentance, with reverence and fear. As the psalmist writes, let's enter into his courts with thanksgiving and praise. And not just at church. Not just at church, but in and through every aspect of our lives. 